Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. This is the last day of September, Thursday, September 30th, 2021. I'm John Pothworth, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Okay, guys, it's Thursday. It's the 30th of September. We are... We were told at the end of last week that there would be a vote today in the House on the hard infrastructure bill that was supposed to be voted on on Monday, uh, but that is not the most interesting thing that's happening here. The most interesting thing that's happening here is that the Biden presidency and the argument of the Democratic Party that it uh, would restore normalcy and normality and a sense of proportion to American politics in the wake of Donald Trump. Uh, All these ideas are hanging by a thread and the reality is beginning to set in. I note on Twitter with uh, liberals that the fantasy that they had indulged in uh, of the new New Deal uh, or the new New Society or whatever is uh, simply not going to happen. The swing vote in the Senate, one of the two swing votes in the Senate, Joe Manchin uh, of West Virginia, literally said yesterday afternoon that it would be fiscal insanity to pass the $3.5 trillion budget bill that the progressives in the House want to pass. Fiscal insanity. That bill is dead. He took, he, he said it before he wrote an op-ed in which he said he wouldn't vote for it. He said a month before the op-ed, he wouldn't vote for it. He basically took a gigantic carving knife and carved the heart out of the progressive fantasy yesterday. It is fiscal insanity. What's going on here? I got one number to cite to you and then we can have a general conversation. That number is 18,000. 18,000 is the number of votes that represented the margin of Joe Manchin's victory in the West Virginia Senate race in 2018. The most popular and dominating politician in his state since the early 1980s, Joe Ma- or the 90s, let's say, since, since Robert Byrd sort of uh, became a less and less viable public figure. Uh, Joe Manchin barely won re-election, did not get over 50% of the vote. And as Jonah Goldberg pointed out, in behaving the way he is behaving, he is representing the citizens of the state that he represents, who not only almost threw him out of office simply for being a Democrat, but voted for Trump by 40 points. He is a senator. He represents West Virginia. He doesn't represent the uh, Democratic UMA. He doesn't represent the, you know, the Democratic people or the Democratic or liberal or leftist vision. He is a representative of a group of voters who do not ideologically agree with the Democratic Party's hard shift to the left And this is an easy call for him, therefore. If he wants to run in 2024 for re-election, he is best off being known as the murderer of this bill. That is his, that will be his calling card in 2024 when a Republican comes after him. He will say, 
I stood there and I stopped those lunatics and that's my job. My job is to stop those lunatics. You just become one in a sea of Republicans in the Senate if you are replace me uh, as West Virginia's senior senator. I am the guardian at the gates preventing socialism from taking over this country. This I is got another one for you. Vote. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. No. Kirsten Sinema, who won her uh, race to the U.S. Senate in 2018 by... 45, 50,000 votes, something like that. Pretty significant margin. It was like three points, <clears throat> but nevertheless, pretty close. Um, there is some polling out uh, yesterday from Arizona that shows her with higher favorabilities than Mark Kelly by about three points. Mark, Mark Kelly, Kelly being is, the newly elected senator uh, from... He's kept a pretty low profile, but yeah. is nevertheless a pretty uh, well-regarded Democrat within the caucus. Um, and her favorability is, is lower with Democrats than Mark is Marx is with Democrats, but it's higher with independents and it's higher with Republicans. And this should be really so intuitive that it doesn't need to be said, but that's how you win reelection in a purplish, more red or purplish state like Arizona. And if your prime directive is getting reelected as everybody laments, because you know, lawmakers won't just wander into a buzzsaw for the sake of whatever leadership's priorities are at the moment. Um, that's how you do it. Also, I think it's fair to say that Joe Manchin, we don't understand Kirsten Sinema's politics. She began as a green. She's an eccentric person. She behaves eccentrically. You know, she's the first bisexual uh, to, you know, claim bisexual. Huh? Openly bisexual. Openly bisexual person to be elected. Um She's got multicolored hair. She wears cat sweaters on yeah. the floor of the, the well she's of the Senate. Ex- so. she's, a, she's an eccentric person to be in the U.S. Senate. But Joe Manchin is Joe Manchin is an old-fashioned, glad-handing, government-spending Paul who wants to spend money, uh, you know, sort of scattering it around his constituencies uh, to make them feel good and make them like him. Uh, he famously tried very hard to help Barack Obama and the Democrats find some middle ground on guns in 2010, 2011, 2012, uh, and was rebuffed uh, in his effort uh, as a kind of gun whisperer, as a, look, you have to understand, here's what gun people want, like everybody in my state, and they were uninterested. So he is an old-fashioned Paul. She is some kind of new, either totally singular Paul or a, a new-fashioned uh, post-ideological Paul of a sort that we're probably going to see more of. Either way, as you say, they both benefit from this getting as melodramatic as possible and for them to take, you know, to be the assassins, like uh, as as the progressives say, et tu brute, they are sticking the knives right in Caesar's heart. I don't even think we talked about this the other day, but <clears throat> during the gubernatorial debate in Virginia, Terry McAuliffe was a former governor of Virginia, former chairman of the Democratic Governors Association, former chairman of the National Democratic Committee, said this bill spends too much money. It's just too much money because well, all we ever talk about is money. We don't talk about what the thing does, and it's the price tag is too high. I mean, if that's not a bellwether, 
then you don't know what a bellwether is. Well, and that 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 that's a really important point because there, it's very easy for Mansion and Cinema to take on the role that you just described, John. Because the Progressive Caucus will not stop repeating this lie that this massive amount of spending has zero cost. I mean, any even Americans who don't want to get into the details of how these things are budgeted and what's being spent on what understand that that's impossible because they run a budget for their own family. And if you suddenly want to spend, you know, a whole lot of money, you can't, unless you can prove that that's offset with something else, it's it's just, un, it's literally unbelievable for the average American when they keep saying that. But you, you know what else? I think the success that, um, whatever success progressives have enjoyed over the past couple of years in, in advancing their agenda um, they've always managed to tie their wh- whatever they wanted to some form of like moral blackmailing, so, you know, successfully to say, if you don't do this, well, then you're racist. Or if you don't do this, you're sexist or you're xenophobic. Or... By making this purely about big spending, they, they, they screw that one up. They, 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 they forgot the blackmail part. They're just like, well, no, you got to spend no. a lot. But there, there is a blackmail part, and it is, again, exactly the thing that makes it attractive to Manchin to be the slayer of the bill. The moral blackmail in this bill is climate change stuff. That's there's all this climate... Yeah. No, there, no, no, there's all this climate change stuff in there. And climate change stuff kills West Virginia, which right. is a state whose major industry is coal. And maybe it shouldn't be. Maybe that should change over time. But as it happens, that is the story of West Virginia. Joe Manchin took a gun and made a television commercial when the cap and trade Obama, when Obama's environmental bill was up for cap and trade in 2011 or 20, whatever it was, 2010. And he took a gun and he shot a bullet through the bill and got elected to the Senate. I mean, so his incentive structure is so radically out of step with their incentive structure, and they don't understand it. Like Biden's having Mansion Cinema to the White House. There's, you know, Josh Marshall of Talking Points Mammo is, you know, doing the reverse Tea Party thing of threatening cinema with um, primaries, and here's who could primary her, and she's going to lose the Democratic primary when she runs for re-election. And all of that, right? So uh, that's 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 his game. And then Biden's saying, "What do you need? What number do you need? What do you need?" And they're, you know, being civil, talking to him, and all of that. And the fact is, make the number bigger, make the number smaller, make the number zero, make the number two. He needs that bill to die so that he can be the killer of the bill. They do not understand his incentives, and saying. You need to do this either for the good of your country or the good of your party. Depends on, number one, him believing that the bill is for the good of the country, which he probably doesn't, and for the good of the party, believing, well, if I lose, then the party no longer has a majority in the Senate. So how is it good for the party for me to vote for something that is going to kill my career the way voting for um, the tax increases in 1993 killed Marjorie Margolis Mezvinsky's career. She was the deciding vote in the House on the on the Clinton tax increase, and she knew that it was going to kill her 
that was that that was the end. She wasn't going to win re-election if she voted for it. And she voted for it anyway because she believed in it. But Manchin doesn't even believe in it. You have a more recent um, example of that sort of thing: the Obamacare vote. All those all those members who were uh, rode the two thousand eight wave into office knew they were sacrificing themselves. Leadership told them they were sacrificing themselves. They had every indication from the 2009 gubernatorial races in Virginia and New Jersey that they were going to sacrifice themselves. And they did it anyway, because what they were trying to achieve was really rather plain and a a desirable outcome since Ted Kennedy articulated it, expanded access to health care. I still don't know if everybody knows exactly what it is they're voting on here. It's just too much to, to articulate in a single sentence. It's the entire slate of agenda items. Well, look, the central point, I, I think you you have made the central point here uh, that gets at Christine's earlier point. They're saying the bill costs nothing, but the American people don't believe that. And on the other hand, they've pulled this number out of thin air, that the number is the point. They want to say, we spent as much money as was humanly possible, not because these 27 programs that must be passed in order to save the American middle class and create a new transformative of the United States add up to this number. 27 programs, $3.178 trillion over eight years or something like that. That is not what they say. What they say is, give me a number. They're saying to Joe Manchin, give me a number. And then someone said, look, Give us a number, but you know, if the number is any lower than 2.5 trillion, that's going to be really hard for us to swallow. It's like, what is that number? 2.5 trillion? So you're cutting a trillion out, but what are you cutting? What are you cutting from it? What does that mean that you would have done with that extra trillion dollars that you're not going to do now? The policies are what matter, but according to Noah, and I think Noah's right, the spending is what matters to them. Government. Throwing money at things is what they want. The larger the number, point, the better. And Christine's point is worth dwelling on because that's not how normal people understand how money works. It's, it's you, you're sacrificing tender and getting something for it, but it, there's an opportunity cost there. You can't use that money for other things. So when you just are presented with a with a bottom line. Don't be surprised when people evaluate it as they would just any other bill for any other service. And they look at the bill and they say, oh, that's too high. Well, what did I get for it? Well, I don't know. No one's talking about what I got for it. And I, I would hope that that's how most American people understand that this isn't how government is supposed to work either. You're not, you're not supposed to come up with a number. It's not like a competitive eating contest, you know, where you just, you just go, go for the largest amount. doesn't matter how the food's prepared. doesn't matter what's in it. You the know. Joey Chestnut administration. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but that but that's the point, right? If you start to talk to people in terms they understand, you have to account for the fact that the money you're spending was theirs to begin with, and you took it from them in the form of taxation. So right. now they want to they want accountability for that spending. I mean, I'm thinking back to the days. Remember the million dollar wrench or whatever? You know, there were all these 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 sort of big stories in the newspapers about how the Pentagon, in particular, was spending too much money on toilets and so on. But the details of this bill, the reason I don't want to talk about it. There's a lot of mischief making in this thing. I mean, there, there are pilot projects for uh, taxation per mile for driving. There are all kinds of like 
uh, all a lot of the green uh, focused stuff that they couldn't get past with their Green New Deal is squirreled away in there in some of the details and worth looking at. And it's a massive bill. So there's a lot of mischief to be made if they actually get any of this passed. There is apparently a provision in the bill. I mean, I haven't been able to sort of fully verify this because it, it came from a sort of a partisan website that um, local newspaper publishers, either the publishers or the or the people hired by the publishers, if they are deemed local publishers publishing a local paper, are going to get a $12,000 per quarter credit for hiring reporters. So it's a $50,000 federal subvention to support local reporting at local newspapers. Really? The federal government is going to pay newspaper publishers to hire reporters? Now you Aside... know journalists are so angry at Joe Manchin. <laughs> and that won't I affect mean, their coverage of, you know, say, Democratic politics at all. It's not just all. that. <laughs> it's not just that. Um, I believe that is probably patently unconstitutional, uh, uh, particularly if the publishers in question are for-profit institutions. Um because you could certainly make the case that those who do not get the subvention, uh, you know, you are you are making a law uh, that um, uh, you are you are subsidizing you are subsidizing one form of press as opposed to another, which would itself potentially violate the First Amendment's. Uh, you know, Congress shall make no law respecting the freedom of the press. Um, but even so, like when there's if that provision is there, and as I say, I'm not 100 percent sure it is. I'm, I think it is. Um, there are probably 5,000 others that are similarly eye-rollingly astounding, which is, why, by the way, why you have this complex process involving bills like this where the Senate passes one, the House passes one. Uh, people stuff things in the bills. When they go to reconciliation to write the final bill that harmonizes the two, the negotiators say, oh, we got to take that out. We got to take this out. We got to take that out. We got to take the other thing out. Um, or they don't, in which case the final bill has stuff like this in it that can then kill the bill on final passage because the opponents can pull out, can finally have a text and say, oh, really? You, did the American people want to spend, give, you know, a Gannett $50,000 per reporter? There's also a lot of DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion stuff in their money thrown at people to train, uh, particularly in the medical field, which I think, again, to sell that to the American people right now is not going to be an easy sell for someone in a state that isn't like solidly blue. Right. So anyway, so this bill, which was not going to pass today anyway, right? It's this is This is not the immediate crisis. There are two immediate crises, one of which is that the uh, that the government is shuts down at midnight tonight unless uh, unless something passes to continue to fund the government. And there appears to have been a deal on that for a two-month extension, however, however this stuff works. Uh, then there is the debt limit, the debt ceiling. Nobody knows, oddly enough, because of the nature of how federal spending works, Nobody knows when the United States government runs out of money and needs to increase the debt limit, meaning that it needs it will then be free to borrow more money to uh, pay for uh, current bills. Um, it could be October 15th. It could be November 1st. Nobody really knows. 
And here we have the interesting politics of Chuck Schumer and the Democrats and the entire liberal establishment saying the Republicans are being incredibly irresponsible. How dare they? The debt limit pays for spending that has already been agreed to. That is what, you know, the, the debt the debt limit is reached because we are paying the bills that we all agreed to already. And so it is incredibly irresponsible not to lift it. And it could have all these horrible deleterious consequences. The United States credit rating could be downgraded and the world could go into an economic collapse. Yada, da, 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 da. Uh, but as Mitch McConnell says, it's very easy for the Democrats to raise the debt ceiling. They just need to invoke uh, the reconciliation process, which is the process that says that because a bill is a budget bill, uh, it 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 evades the limit, it evades the rules of filibuster and can be voted on and passed by a simple majority. And so McConnell's saying, you do that. We don't want to do anything that's going to help you spend the kind of money you want to spend in the future. So you vote this in. You have the process. We know you have it. You know you have it. Vote it. And Schumer is saying, the majority leader is saying, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. It's very complicated. It's very tricky. And anyway, it's not fair. It's not fair. You need to vote on this. It's not fair. Why? Because one of the things that McConnell is doing is limiting the Democratic ability to use reconciliation for other things. Because in the original rule that passed reconciliation stuff in the early 90s, by, by the way, Robert Byrd, the pre- mansion West Virginia dominating politician, you could only invoke reconciliation twice in a given, I don't know, session, calendar year, I don't know, something like that. And they don't want to, they don't want to play the card. Like they don't, you know, it's their, it's their, one of their two get out of jail free cards and they want to save it for something that they enjoy. It's like, I don't want to spend money uh, on, you know, on repairing the roof we're cleaning out the gutters. That's no fun. I want to build a mud room. I want to renovate my mud room. And you're saying I have to use it on the roof. Which no, they is want like- to go to Cabo with that money. They don't want to. They don't want to yeah, improve right. the structure at all. Can I just yeah. add one other thing about the numbers being thrown around here and how? Um, I, I also want to note that Noah made this point a long time ago, and a lot of other writers are now glomming onto it. But you were there first, Noah. The, the way that the American people listen to this discussion, because um, there's is very clearly distinct from how these elites and I and I, these a lot of these progressive legislators are among the elite that one of the bits of news that came out yesterday was that Dollar Tree stores, which, you know, where everything's a dollar, a lot of Americans are shopping at nowadays, nowadays has just announced that they're going to raise on select items. They weren't specific the price of everything over a dollar. So that's one of these signals that's a little canary in the coal mine. If you're a legislator to say, wow, my constituents in a lot of the country can't even go to the dollar store with a dollar anymore. That's the experience of Americans who are who live with a budget and live, you know, paycheck to paycheck. And that's a lot of people. So this idea that they're just throwing money around and a trillion here, a trillion there, it's actually kind of um, offensive, I think, to a lot of Americans who might otherwise think, oh, yeah, great, you're going to give me free childcare, really? But where where's all this money coming from? Oh, it's cost you zero. And, you know, I constantly, Abe, I constantly talk about the parallels to the 1970s in a way that is getting exhausting. Like all old people talk about what happened when they were young. Although usually they do it to say, boy, it was so much better then. And I'm not saying that at all. Um, The idea that the dollar store has to inflate its prices uh, because um, of 
whatever it is that's making their, them inflate their prices, is so precisely analogous to the national mood in the in the in the early 1970s when gas prices quintupled in a week after the oil embargo. Number one and number two, so much so that one night on the Tonight Show, I think in 1974, Johnny Carson, who was then watched by like 20 million people, was the most I don't know influential television personality or the you know, most important television television personality in America, made a joke about how there was a toilet paper shortage. A joke. After which, as you'll remember from the early days of the pandemic, there was a nationwide run on toilet paper because the joke rang too true to people. It made perfect sense given the nature of the way America had gone and the fact that suddenly they were rationing gas and you know, restraining wages and prices and all of this, that suddenly there wasn't going to be enough toilet paper to go around. And there was suddenly a supply chain crisis on toilet paper. And look, look where we are now. Like those, the, 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 this is, we are, everything old is new again, as your old friend Peter Allen once said. He did. Um, the, the dollar store raising its prices uh, makes one hell of a political ad, don't you think? That's that's a it doesn't exactly get more thought, yeah. punchy and succinct than that. And also, I think two days ago the Fed said that the that um, that um, inflation has been has lasted longer and um, been uh, deeper than they had anticipated. Um, that's barely even being discussed amidst the rest of this, which is you know obviously in, in keeping with the 1970s parallel. Um, guys, uh, it's enough to make your hair fall out with anxiety and rage. So let me talk to you about Nutrafol, because when it comes to thinning hair, if you got thinning hair from all of this, you no longer have to choose between natural remedies and those that work. There's a holistic solution for men that promotes both healthier hair and whole body wellness without drugs or prescriptions. We're talking about Nutrafol. Did you know there are five root causes of thinning hair? Nutrafol is the hair supplement that goes beyond genetics to target stress, hormones, nutrition, metabolism, and environmental factors. It's clinically shown to improve hair growth, thickness, and visible scalp coverage without compromise. 21 potent natural ingredients support sex drive, better sleep, and less stress, too. In a clinical study, men showed progressive improvement in hair growth and thickness after three and six months. Nutrafol is also trusted and recommended by more than 1,500 top doctors. You can grow thicker, healthier hair and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com and entering the promo code commentary to save $15 off your first month subscription. This is their best offer anywhere, and it's only available to U.S. customers for a limited time, plus free shipping on every order. Get $15 off at Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code commentary. Um, so, uh, now we have a fight breaking out inside the Biden administration over what happened in Afghanistan. Uh, fascinating behind, uh, closed doors, supposedly confidential national security bound testimony by, uh, General Milley and uh, in which he said, hey, I told them 
to secure Bagram. I told them to, you know, not to, I told them that there was going to be trouble. I told state that there was going to be trouble and the state department didn't pass the FOLCQ3 document and sign the statement of principles regarding the something or other. And as a result, um, we uh, we we reduced our our security footprint to the Kabul airport with the results that we have now seen. So that was not what was discussed in the two open days of testimony, but was apparently discussed yesterday in in the in the closed door testimony. Who boy, it's early. It is early in an administration for this uh, kind of. Uh, I didn't do it. Tony did it. Don't look at me. Tony did it. I I don't know. Yeah, uh, knives Abe. out is usually year three. <laughs> yeah, uh, Abe, what's your? Uh... Yeah, f- falling on swords should be uh, should be now, right? You know, but who's but who's gonna? I mean, you know, Afghanistan... you're not allowed to fall on swords, Abe, because if your dad was an OJ, <laughs> he couldn't fall on a sword. So how dare you say that you should fall on your sword? His dad was an emojima. You make an Do you hear me? Point. Okay, thank you. Um, I like Emojima. I'm sorry. Oh yeah, yeah. There's emo that. Yes. Emo, emo. <laughs> that's, no, that's, that's actually a good coinage. Yeah. We're not it's very emo. emo. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it was an emo. It was yeah. an emo. It was an emojima moment. It's an right. Emo, emojima yeah. moment. <laughs> yeah, El- Elliot Smith could write a, a song called yes. Emojima. Um, no, but I mean, uh, you know, uh, Af- the Afghanistan withdrawal was such a self-evident disaster that I don't know what they're going to do. If anyone's to, to cop to, you know, having advised uh, uh, Biden to, to conduct it the way he did, you really would have to resign. I mean, you know, so you have to clear yourself. I mean, I think that's that's what we're seeing. And, I mean, <laughs> and, and, and that's what's been so startling about this is, is, is there's kind of every man for himself reality in the hearings. If you read these stories about how this all unfolded closely in the Times, in Journal, in Politico, it's very clear that everybody who's speaking to them on background is blaming everybody else. The Pentagon blames state for not getting all their all the diplomats out in time, all their you know SIVs, not speeding up that process. State blames the Pentagon. The civilian leadership in the administration blames the Pentagon. They say we followed them every step of the way. This was their plan. They they they, just, they provided the blueprint. We just executed it. Um. All of them, however, sort of obliquely, really put the blame at the feet of the president. It's the president's idea. president executed it. We gave him every opportunity to do X, Y, Z, to avert catastrophe. He chose not to. The more loyal among them are trying to sell this, Tony Blinken in particular, trying to sell this as uh, you know a species of success, even though it's a, quote, strategic failure, I think, according to one of the one of the military officials who who testified the other day. And if you know what the word strategic means, that means every everything else before it is irrelevant because the strategy, the grand strategy here was a failure and that's everything that led up to it contributed to the failure. So there's no absolution there. Um, but yeah, contradictory uh, testimony to the effect that, you know, the, this person owns this part of the failure, that person owns all that part of the failure. It doesn't matter. Ultimately, it was a failure and everybody owns a piece of it. Um, I, you know, the backbiting right now is, is, as you say, probably indicative of something that'll become much more public very soon. 
I don't know if it's too early in the administration, but it is certainly about to unfold in a, in a much more public fashion. Well, well, I just want to say, you know, the truth is, don't forget, the Pentagon was going to the press before all this happened, uh, anonymously, without without names being published, and saying, this is a bad idea. Honestly, as distrustful as I am of, of whatever we hear out of the Pentagon and out of intelligence agencies, they they own less of this than the civilian leadership does. The civilian leadership, from all, all accounts, was much more committed to a precipitous withdrawal on a set timeline than the Pentagon was. I mean, the thing that everybody says is that they were surprised by the celerity with which the Afghan forces collapsed in the face of the Taliban onslaught. Um, then, you know, the obvious rejoinder to that is, well, we withdrew our air support. Uh, the entire Afghan military strategy was based on having air support from us so that they could control the ground and keep Taliban forces from advancing on their positions. Um, but I think what's what's most striking about that as a detail is that... Uh, the State Department and Biden himself in the in the now famous conversation with President Ghani was like, well, we can't uh, do things that will indicate the severity of the situation because what we're spinning this as is it's all going to be fine. And had we made moves to secure Bagram and had we insisted on having, you know, multiple points of exit and then had we started moving the SIVs and people out, then that would have been an indication that the government was going to collapse and we needed to give the government time. But from the minute that we withdrew air support, this was a foregone conclusion. And that's where the Pentagon is implicated because the Pentagon is the military strategist part of this game. And if they didn't say we are now courting disaster by closing Bagram, then then the, you know, the, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. But we have every indication that they did. Um, <clears throat> there was a joint congressional panel that recommended uh, 4,500 troops and, you know, preserving a, a, a position there well beyond the May deadline, much of which was adopted by this administration, in fact, albeit without the increased troop levels. The troop, there, there was recommendations for increased troop levels throughout the course of this, administ of, of this withdrawal that the administration rejected on the premise that the Taliban would attack uh, if we were to insert more troops. Now, then all of a sudden we started withdrawing. It wasn't sufficient. We had to insert more troops and the Taliban didn't suddenly attack because lo and behold, our whole strategy is predicated on the idea that they want us out as fast as possible. Why we would hold on to Bagram, a, a more defensible position and leave with more alacrity and somehow that mutual self-interest would dissolve boggles the mind. Also, we got more confirmation yesterday. One thing for the record that we should note is General uh, Frank McKenzie, the head of CENTCOM, confirmed a uh, Washington Post expose that alleged uh, the Taliban political official Baradar, who we talked about yesterday, has since been sidelined, presented the uh, United States with the opportunity to take and hold for a time being um, Kabul to be the uh, the de facto power 
and police Kabul, um, which would have required a much bigger presence, obviously. And that's the sort of thing that the, the White House was against, you know, no matter what. Um, but that's a, a profound missed opportunity. We still don't understand how that squares with the NBC report that said we were going to strike if you entered, if you entered Kabul and then we didn't. I, I don't, still don't know how to square that circle. But now we have confirmation that that absolutely happened, that Zal Khalilzad was present when that happened. And he probably communicated that to the president. Right. Zal Khalilzad is the uh, is the twenty year uh, government official who uh, has been uh, negotiating over Afghanistan and Iraq for uh, two decades, and I I, I wouldn't want to be him right now. Anyway, uh, so I want to shift gears to ask a, a, like a, 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 a maybe ridiculously sentimental and uh, old fashioned. Uh, naive question. And this has to do with a lot of the stuff that we're talking about here about the uh, incredible incompetence and uh, lack of foresight by the Biden administration and the foreign policy consequences that are going to spring therefrom. But it also goes to what's going on with the hard infrastructure bill and everything like that. Uh, There was a huge scandal in 2009 when Mitch McConnell then the minority leader of 39, or maybe even, you know, 39 Republican senators said, and Rush Limbaugh also said, I want Barack Obama to fail. You know, I want him to fail. He wants things I don't want. I want him to be a one-term president. This then, oh, you see the Republicans, they don't, they want him to fail. He should be a one-term president. They want him to fail. This is so terrible. Now, this was a point at which the Republican Party was at low ebb. It had not been as powerless as this since 1970. To, I don't know, since the 60s, really, because at least it held the White House after the Watergate uh, elections in 1974. Um, and McConnell was basically saying, you know, we're just not going to, we're going to stand by and let, they're, they're going to do what they're going to do. We're not going to be implicated in what they do. And if it's a success, They'll get all the credit. And if it's a failure, we're going to come in and, and, and clean up. Flash forward to twenty, the aftermath of the 2016 election. I think it's fair to say that everybody who didn't like Trump was desperate for Trump to fail on the grounds that Trump shouldn't be president. He was a danger to the republic. He was a danger to everything. And so the actual best thing for the country would be for Trump to fail, even if Trump's failure meant that bad things would happen to the country. So here's my question. We're now, here's what we've been through. It's now 2021. Biden is increasingly looking like somebody who, whom history will record as having had a failed presidency. At least we don't see much, we don't see many signs of him looking like he's going to have a successful presidency. I mean, Things have to change. There has to be a reversal in momentum and a change in the way things go for that to be the case. And, you know, my friend Kyle Smith has a really funny piece of the New York Post this morning about taking out the popcorn and watching the Democrats immolate each other and all of that. Is this something we want? Like, let's say all things being equal, you're, you know, you you sit down, the, the, the devil and the angel pop onto your shoulder and they're like, you could pick that the hard infrastructure bill passes, but everything else fails or something like that. Maybe you don't like the hard infrastructure bill. It's ridiculous. It's a trillion dollars. We can't afford it, all of that. But 
the the complete political failure of Washington, the failure of an administration, you know, sort of like the failure of uh, elementary competence. What is the role of a non of a of a non not explicitly partisan person in looking at the American political system and saying? There are things that could happen that I don't like, like the passage of a far too expensive bill. But maybe all things being equal, it would be better if it passed than if it failed. Or I really hope that, you know, Biden can right the ship and do the right things in the South China Sea or whatever, because the world can't afford the United States to be in this position. And if it makes him look like he's the greatest and most visionary president who ever lived, if he can come up with a foreign policy that reverses field and actually changes the course of things, that is something that I would want, not something I wouldn't want, even though it will empower the party I don't like and it would empower people I don't like and it would it would discredit ideas that I support. Is that a... Where, where are we on... Abe, what do you... Well, I mean, I think if you're not explicitly partisan, then yes, of course, you you hope for, you know, essentially nothing but the best of the country at every turn. Um, But if we're talking about, you know, you you mentioned Mitch McConnell and and Rush Limbaugh and then Trump's enemies, I think if you're remotely partisan, you always want the other side to fail, to be honest. But what you want is this sort of Goldilocks failure where they don't get any wins really, but nothing too catastrophic happens either. It's a, it's a good failure. It's a, it's a, it's a failure that ruins them without ruining the country. It's like baking a very delicate, you know, souffle. But that's, (laughs) but that's, but that's a, a, that's a perfect way of putting it. And the problem is that I think our political rhetoric these days won't allow for the Goldilocks failure for either side, right? Because as we were talking about earlier, there's, there's a kind of moral and emotional blackmail tone to a lot of how legislation gets passed now. And this idea that, that, um, you know, look, I think a lot of people on principle could say, I don't want to spend this much money at this point when the economy seems to be stuttering. We're coming out of a pandemic. We don't need to do this. That's a policy position. It's based on a principle. And a lot of moderates would probably agree with it. But that's not how we talk about legislation anymore. It's you're a horrible person who wants the poor and their children to die. Like this is literally the tone, even in mainstream kind of social media discussions of this stuff. So if you're not kind of naturally partisan person on either side of the aisle, you either just don't talk about it and then things happen where your input is not registered by the people making the policy, or you got to double down on one side or the other, and then you just, then you're in it to win it. So it's really hard to find that, to bake that perfect souffle. You know, I think it's made harder also because the fact is that the parties are so ideologically sorted now, sorted, not sorted, that um, everything on the other side's agenda or most things on the other side's agenda are likely to offend you in a way that wasn't always the case, right? So even though my first answer was very cynical, the truth is when I see a, a, a nominally liberal party do something that I do agree with, I'm actually kind of happy and, um, um, it's like this sort of pleasant surprise to be able to say, Hey, this, they, they, they actually did this well doesn't happen much is is the truth their their successes usually mean things that are bad for the country in my eyes 
or well i mean i think that's that's the ultimate defense against my you know my proposition is of course you want them to fail because what they want is bad and you think it's bad otherwise you would agree with them and you would want them to succeed like it's not you know unless you are literally someone who works in partisan politics and your uh your continued prosperity uh depends on your the person you work for continuing to hold office or uh your electoral success as a consultant continuing with victories and therefore you need the other side to fail so that you can charge more money uh getting uh, your people elected and all of that if you're not that kind of person of course 98 percent of people who are interested in politics are, are not that kind of person it, it it represents an interesting set of circumstances because i mean what one could say for example is i really want biden to reverse field and do right in american foreign policy because that's something that 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 is a long-term issue about the existential safety of the united states you know over the next century and you know bad moves taken in a in a, in a contained period of time uh in that area are much harder to reverse than people realize and they have generational generation long consequences that can have other consequences and all of that on the other hand i could say well you know if biden ends up being like a great foreign policy president won't this strengthen the um woke faction of his party it won't it then give ancillary strength to the ideas that are being promulgated about the united states domestically by the people who vote for Biden are the vanguard of his party that will destroy the country from within about the evil of the United States, about, you know, this is, and so I don't have a, a, a ready answer. Um, can I, can I just yeah. add, uh, there was an interesting, there's an interesting survey results that are being published by the uh, center for politics at UVA uh, that just came out. And one of the things that I thought was interesting, we've talked about this on the podcast many times. One of the frustrations of a lot of people who consider themselves, you know, mildly conservative to quite conservative is that we're always told that it's the Democrats who care about governance. They care about norms. And, you know, we've, we've I think, uh, usefully mocked this in terms of how the Biden administration has shown time and time again that they really don't when it comes to trying to get what they want. But I, the statistics that was sort of worrisome to me uh, that they published recently was that they said a significant number of both Trump and Biden voters show a willingness to consider violating democratic tendencies and norms if needed to serve their priorities. Roughly two in 10 Trump and Biden voters strongly agree it would be better if, quote, a president could take needed actions without being constrained by Congress or courts. So one of the things that's frustrating about having these discussions is that it's very, there's a kind of a shorthand that the media also embraces on behalf of Democrats that they're more serious people, right? Remember, Biden's the grown up, he's going to come back in, the professionals are back, America is back. But in fact, their voters are just as committed as Trump voters are to the idea that their dear leader should have a little more power than the other guy because we want to get something done. And that's worrisome to me because that's suggesting that the way that we're, the way Americans view our system and the the true genius of our system is something that's frustrating their, their you know, immediate policy needs and they don't have a respect for how things were designed to work. I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the idea of uh, utter political paralysis 
and an inability for either side to get anything done that needs to get done um, has a uh, will have has will have terrible consequences. That said, uh, doing bad things is bad, <laughs> and you can't say it would be better for bad things to happen rather than good things. Uh, if the things that are going to happen are bad, are bad. I, I know this sounds, again, it's like very, very naive. But um, I mean, I, I, I would say that all things, all things being equal, of everything that is going on now, aside from the fact that we really do need to increase the debt limit, or the debt limit needs to be increased, and as McConnell knows, Democrats have it very easily within their power to increase the debt limit. They did the exact same thing to Republicans in 2006, refusing to vote for the debt limit. So Republicans had to do it through reconciliation themselves. So spare me, as I said yesterday, spare me the crocodile tears. So that that does need to happen. And I guess the government needs to be funded, and that will happen. That's already going to happen on a bipartisan basis. So then you have this thing, which is this trillion-dollar infrastructure bill that was a bipartisan bill. And I, all things being equal, I probably think it's it's likely that it's you know twice as expensive as it should be. But it doesn't raise taxes. And um, I don't think it's just a matter of pageantry that it might be a good thing if the bill passed. Now I think it would be an even better thing for the bill to pass because it will put a stake in the heart of the progressive caucus that wanted to, wants to use it to kill it to force the passage of the bill that they want. That would be a lesson in political reality that I would enjoy seeing progressives have to learn. But uh, I, I don't really know if I'm, I'm right on if I'm right on that. Um, all things being equal, Noah, where do you where do you come down? Would you say? Well, so that Rush Limbaugh quote that you uh, mentioned earlier has been, I guess. You, you adopted the democratic premise of it, which is a misinterpretation of it that has been corrected okay. and corrected again. So Sorry. I guess they win the messaging war around that one. But what he did say at the time was explicitly domestic. He made it clear in that monologue that what he hopes to fail is the president's agenda. And more importantly, the paradigmatic revolution he was attempting to, or what Rush Limbaugh believed he was attempting to impose on the nation, which was to change the conceptual framework around which the social contract is based, capitalism, free enterprise, and individual liberty into something much different. And that was something he opposed. And if Obama was successful, then the country would not be in his view. That's a very defensible position. It's one I shared, one I continue to share. And it was reshaped and remolded in sort of a hangover from the Clinton era 1995 style transformed the American right wing radio into the, the big, big bad guy. Um, but it was transformed into this idea that if Obama fails, the country fails. And that's simply not true. But there was no foreign policy component to that monologue. Um, and having a foreign policy component right. now to the prospect of this administration failing does alter and change the calculation pretty significantly. Um, we weren't there as much as we disagreed with Barack Obama about getting out of uh, Iraq when he did, a decision that was he subsequently reversed when conditions made it impossible for him to pursue that policy. Um, there was still a pretty broad consensus around the idea that aggressively conducting the global war on terror 
was a bipartisan consensus. It was unchallenged. Afghanistan, you'll recall, recall was the right war. It was the good war. It was the war we were always supposed to fight after September 11th. And the decade since has changed that consensus around pretty significantly, which which does throw into, into uh, I guess, dispute whether or not, not the, the country will survive, the, the country will survive this, but will our alliances survive it? Will our uh, standing internationally survive it? Will there be challenges to American primacy in the Indo-Pacific or in East Asia that represent a fundamental uh, alteration of the uh, the global consensus around uh, the Pax Americana and American hegemony? Possibly. That was not at issue in 2009. Um, yeah, so it's okay. a very different geopolitical environment to be having that conversation. In. Okay. So uh, let me uh, let me just pull back and talk to you about our our, our, our final advertiser today, ExpressVPN. Have you ever browsed in incognito mode? It's not as incognito as you think. Why would it be incognito mode? Like the Chrome browser itself is a Google product, and Google has made its fortune by tracking your movements online. There's even a five billion dollar class action lawsuit against the company in California, where it's accused of secretly collecting user data. Google's defense, I quote here incognito does not mean invisible, unquote. So how do you actually make yourself as invisible as possible online? You use ExpressVPN like I do. Look, when you're in incognito mode, your online activity still gets tracked. Data brokers still get to buy and sell your data because your IP address is visible to them. Data harvesters use your IP address to uniquely identify you in your location. But with ExpressVPN, your connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and your IP address is masked. Every time you connect to ExpressVPN, you get a random IP address shared by many other ExpressVPN users. That makes it harder for third parties to identify you or harvest your data. And best of all, ExpressVPN is super easy to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop, or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button for instant protection. So if you really want to go incognito and protect your privacy, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN. Visit expressvpn.com slash commentary and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash commentary. Go to expressvpn.com slash commentary to learn more. I have, um, I have one interesting thing I wanted to share with you guys at the end, which is, a tweet by a despairing Chris Hayes, the MSNBC evening host, whom I like personally very much. He's a nice guy, and 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 he's a he's a, a good broadcaster. Very, you know, obviously I don't agree with him on anything, but okay. So here is what he tweeted last night at seven oh seven p.m. after Ma- Manchin said that it was you know fiscal insanity and everything was going on. Quote. Considering the situation Dems now find themselves in, partly born of an improbable set of upset victories in Georgia to achieve the narrowest majority possible, a lot of the presidential primary debates on domestic policy look truly absurd. And yes, this was also clear at the time. It was. It was to me. It was to us. I mean, I wrote... I don't know how many debates were there. I wrote a column for the New York Post after every single debate in which I said, these people are crazy. And the reason that Joe Biden is winning is that he's the one person who isn't participating in the rush to madness, you know, abolishing ICE, you know, transgender, the, what, however it was, right? 
A lot of the presidential primary debates on domestic policy look truly absurd. Imagine if the liberal and leftist intelligentsia in 2019 had actually said, these debates are absurd. What is the matter with you people? Instead, the very online, among whom I would, I would, I would uh, include Chris Hayes, though he's also on TV, uh, might have done something to moderate the madness and thus uh, end the delusion that has led the progressives to this pass. Or am I missing something? He also went off on how the notion that we're reaching a point of fiscal insolvency in our uh, non-discretionary spending entitlement programs is entirely uh, a, con- a convention of our own minds that we've made this all up and that it can be, it's evitable and we could avert it with a, a pen stroke. By contrast, however, all the projections that suggest we're on a path to a, apocalyptic climate change are in, uh, unassailably solid, um, which tells you, of, it seems to affirm your very online diagnosis. Um, I remember all those debates. There were a lot of them. What was the single issue that, that dominated those debates? Medicare for all. We talked about Medicare for all to the point of nausea. And it, we said the exact same thing. Everybody's positions were reiterated and restated. Um, there was a point at which everybody was uh, you know, outbidding each other. And then it just became restating the exact same position night after night, week after week. And where is Medicare for all? I mean, literally, we're talking about a moonshot of all the Democratic agenda items that they've ever wanted. And that's not even in there. They, they could only settle on expanding access to Medicare for, from 65 to 60 and throwing some dental and vision in there. That's the extent of what they could even in their wildest imaginings that they could ever pull off in this sort of thing. I mean, I'm sure the $6 trillion types would have thrown it in there too, but this is as good as it gets. And even that's not in there. So yes, to the extent that Chris Hayes has put his finger on the button, it was a, a series of absurd uh laughable premises that were just a a demonstration of your tribal identity more than a policy proposal. Uh, So in that sense, yes, the progressive left did drive the the conversation off the rails. And this is the tragedy of the Biden presidency. And I call it a tragedy because you could also just call it a comedy. That's why Kyle Smith, among others, is, you know, taking out the popcorn to watch, you know, and watching the world burn. Um, Because as we know, Biden won the presidency because he was not them, right? He won the nomination because he was not them. He was the guy who was not them. And then he became the president and he was them. Why did he do that? We don't really understand why he did that. And why, and therefore, everything that is happening now, he summoned upon himself Because, as Chris Hayes notes, the improbable victories in Georgia made something thinkable that would otherwise not have been thinkable and created a policy agenda that was as deranged with 50 seats as it would have been with 48 seats, I believe. I mean, maybe something's going to happen in the next 48 to 72 hours that will make this all seem like I'm insane, and Nancy Pelosi will look like the single greatest political mind of our time, and Biden will look like a visionary, and all of that. But I, I wouldn't, um, you know, I wouldn't bet two dollars on that at the OTB window. Uh, let's I, let's just I, put it that way. 
Can I add one more uh, thing to the, because I really, I just want to chastise all of you men for not talking about the Biden-Harris administration, which as we know is a co-equal, co-joint, co-whatever presidency. Uh, news is coming out this week that, that Harris has now hired crisis management consultants to try to get through her vice presidency. But she did say something yesterday that I just want to spend a minute absolutely excoriating, which is that uh, she was uh, talking to some students and a, uh, a student said uh, that Israel had committed genocide against the Palestinians. And the vice president of the United States endorsed that view by saying, this is your truth. You got to speak your truth. Um, rather than saying what she should have said, which is that is a lie. And <laughs> you really need to read some more books and, and be a little more informed before you say things like like that and throw around the word genocide. So it's not bad enough. I mean, Biden's flailing, but his co-partner, co-equal, the person who was supposed to be his rising star, you know, uh, doing everything with him is really flailing. And and I think that's another little signal for to Democratic voters that, you know, wow, we're in, we're in trouble here. Perhaps, you know, Certainly for the midterms. Maybe. She becomes co-consul whenever he's in trouble. Yeah. Well, I mean, suddenly I, it's the Biden administration again. <laughs> I, I just find, uh, I mean, all of that. Yeah. Is, I mean, that's all, it's all interesting, but again, it gets to this thing, which is okay. Now they're watching the world burn and Chris Hayes is saying, gee, maybe, you know, we shouldn't have thought about these Georgia. We shouldn't have thought that we were delivered into the new era and a new realm by winning these two Georgia seats. You know, all and all that stuff we talked about during the debates. You know, maybe it really. Uh, you know, you know, maybe we're we're kind of kidding ourselves and all of that. And it's like, I, I, I'm sorry. I understand that you don't want to listen to our podcast or whatever. You don't want to listen. To people telling you that you're crazy and this is not where the American people who, after all, hate Trump all you like and say that he is a threat to democracy and everybody who supports him is crazy, did get 74 million votes. Like, you know, he didn't get 24 million votes and is there controlling the country through this tiny minority. Like, all the evidence is there before your eyes. Democrats lost seats in the House. They did not gain in the Senate. They only gained in the Senate because of Trump's bizarre post-election behavior. Read the room. Progressives read the room. America is a very large room. They think America is their corner of the room, and it's not. And that's a very important thing. Christine Rosen, uh, I am now going to task you. Yes. With going to your text. I've already, I'm on it. Don't okay. worry. I have, uh, because I have something we important have. to say. Yes. Please say something important. <laughs> um, well, friends, today is the last day to apply for the Fall Tikva Online Academy courses for 7th, 8th, 9th, and 10th graders. Perhaps the spiritual marathon from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur to Sukkot to Simchat Torah stirred your family's Jewish soul. But as we return in full to the fall school year routines, you may be thinking about the intellectual marathon for your children this school year. Can Tikva play a central role in stirring your child's Jewish mind? Tikva seminar style classes invite your children, grandchildren, and students into the great debates and conversations in Jewish thought, Zionist history, American politics, and Western civilization. Students can participate from anywhere in the world with classes taking place over Zoom on weeknights and Sundays. Classes on offer this fall cover everything from Jewish ideas in the American story to Zionism and Israel's founding debates to Judaism, science and technology to a class I'm really excited to teach called the ethics of social media and just about anything in between. 
To join Tikva Online Academy's community of ideas, go to tikvafund.org slash academy. That's tikva, T-I-K-V-A-H, fund.org slash academy to browse all the fall offerings and have your children apply today. This is the last day to apply. Remember to use promo code COMMENTARY at checkout to save $50 on your child's first course. Inspire the middle and high schoolers in your life to Jewish excellence with Tikva Online Academy. I just want to conclude with this fact. As of today, according to the New York Times, 75% of all Americans over the age of 12 have been vaccinated, have had at least one shot. Where's the herd immunity conversation? What happened to the herd immunity conversation? Because we not only have 75% vaccinated, we don't know how many of them are in this category also. We have the fact that 42 million people uh, have been said to have tested positive for COVID. Uh, We don't know how many of those have also been vaccinated, but let's say some number of them were not vaccinated having had COVID. So that number is probably over 80%. Why have they all fallen silent? They don't want to talk about herd immunity anymore because they still have the campaign to pressure people to get vaccinated. Once again, the public health authorities are picking and choosing what they want to talk about because uh, they are sunsteening us. They are trying to control American behavior and devise stratagems to make people do things that, that, that honestly they, they, they should do. Uh, But nonetheless, I think it's a very interesting moment. We were told 70% was herd immunity. When you have at least one shot, you have 83 to 85% of the protection you're going to get from the the two shots. And I understand that death rates remain, you know, tragically high, over 2,000 a day. But uh, the caseloads are falling 25 to 26% a day, uh, according to the 14-day average, which means that we could be back to these incredibly low case numbers in uh, in another two weeks or three weeks. What do you make of it? Well, it- at the beginning of this month, <clears throat> Anthony Fauci forecast a near term future in which uh, the status fully immunized will transition from you having two shots to having three shots. Um, they were afraid of that because there are mandates now associated with it. And that status has some sort of quasi legal definition to it now, although that's probably going to be challenged in the courts, I think successfully. Um, but they're clearly laying the groundwork to, sh- to, to shift the entire terms of the debate around what immunity even means. And to the extent that we were even talking about breakthrough infections, the idea of herd immunity itself is, is sort of uh, fallacious because Immunity means you you don't get or transmit the thing. So if in Idaho, like, it doesn't, doesn't work. I know you want to say in Idaho, where the ICUs are filled up, one hundred percent of the cases of hospitalized people with COVID, one hundred percent, not ninety nine point four percent, not ninety nine point six percent, one hundred percent are among the unvaccinated in a in a state. Uh, that is in an emergency situation with its um, with its ICUs, which speaks to what Noah just said. Abe, did you have something you wanted to? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think the Delta variant kind of messed up herd immunity projections, in fairness, right? Um, because 
to the extent that 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 the numbers weren't that the percentage numbers weren't just sort of picked from a hat um, and declared as you know uh, getting us to herd immunity. Um, that they were basing that on a, a variant, a version of the virus that that wasn't as easily tra- transmissible as as the one that that then swept through the country. So, just to be fair, um, you'd think that number would have to now be higher. Look, even if they were to talk about herd immunity, if they were to talk about immunity thresholds at all, it would suggest that the objective here is to find a way out of the pandemic. They are not looking for a way out of the pandemic. They're not even interested in the exit doors. We have no indication that there's any desire to find our way out of what was an extraordinary crisis and is now rapidly becoming status quo. The status quo is what it is, and they're just settling into it. At least, at least there is an answer, right? The answer is vaccination. That is the answer. That is the only answer. The problem is they want multiple answers. So they say vaccination, they say masking, they say social distancing. So that on college campuses, no more than four people can gather at any one setting or whatever, even though we're talking about college campuses where no one is allowed on campus unless they're fully vaccinated. So in that sense, uh, they are extending the life of the pandemic Uh, Because they're not satisfied with the answer that is the answer, which is that everybody needs to get vaccinated. They still want to have these secondary behavioral controls in the forms of masking and social distancing um, that are, I I would say, fundamentally are like 90% of the social cohesion problem, present 90% of the social cohesion problems in the country. John, I just want to add, this is related, but slightly different because it, 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 um, it, pertains to a theory that you've had about vaccinations. So Merck and Pfizer are both working on a pill, right? To, uh, that would, uh, that would immunize you from COVID. Um, should this come down the pie, should this materialize, will we continue to see, will there be an anti-pill movement? I say yes, because I think, I think it's all about everything is just a manifestation of our, political reality. But if there is an overriding fear of needles at work, which is something you have said, uh, we would see everyone taking the pill readily and then uh, immunization really ratchet up. Well, look, first of all, we don't know when that pill would would, would be approved. Um, The question is what, what will happen? Let's say the pill is approved. We move out of the pandemic, but we have an endemic problem that requires annual boosters uh, or some version of that. Would people want a shot or would they want a pill? I think it's pretty fair to say people would want a pill and not a shot. I don't care, but um, a lot of people would. We'll never know the answer to that because people are too ashamed to say they're afraid of needles. That's (laughs) That's, part of the problem here. That's not even going to be the the next battle, the next battleground, and it's going to be vicious is when they approve shots for young children. Um, a lot of people who are not hesitant about getting the vaccine for themselves will be hesitant about getting it for their children, and not irrationally, because they understand the risk in uh, ex- that is presented to children by this disease is markedly lower than it is for them. And the public relations campaign around that is going to be unrelentingly, mercilessly, emotionally manipulative, and the backlash to it is going to be quiet, um, but uh, 
immobile, immovable, uh, and oh, really I don't dogged. Think, a, I don't think it's going to be quiet at all. Uh, because I think it'll be the, quieter. There will be very yeah. vocal segments of it, but a lot of yeah. people who are not even remotely reticent to get the shot themselves will be for their children and will be ashamed to say it um, because of the emotional manipulation around that campaign. Well, and we have yet again achieved the crushing morosity so on brand. with which we must end every podcast just to send you out on a low note of social conflict and American decline. But that's what we're here for, isn't it? Isn't that what we're here for? We're here to tell you that no matter how bad things are, it can always get worse. And we'll be back tomorrow <laughs> to do it to you again. Uh, sorry for the length of this one. Uh, but uh, for Abe, Noah, and Christine, I'm John Pavoritz. Keep the camel burning.